Hey, this is Jeff Gannon, and you're listening to the Focus Compounding Podcast. This is the podcast where Andrew and I talk general investing concepts. If you want to know more about specific stocks I like, go to focuscompounding.com, where you can read stock ideas written up by me and other members. Membership costs $60 a month, but if you use the promo code podcast, it'll be $50 a month for you. Andrew and I also manage accounts for investors. To learn more about our managed accounts, email Andrew at info at focuscompounding.com or text or call Andrew at 469-207-5844. That's 469-207-5844. And now here's Andrew with your regularly scheduled podcast. Alrighty, we're ready to get started today. How is everybody doing out there? Hope you are doing well. Happy Wednesday. Hope you are having a great start to your day. My name is Andrew Kuhn. Of course, as always, sitting across my co-founder, Mr. Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going over there? It's going great, Andrew. How's it going with you? It is going great. Of course, we hope it's going great for everybody else as well. Uh, If you do want to get access to Jeff's weekly memo that he does send out on the weekend, on Sunday morning, go to focuscompounding.com and on the homepage, uh, you will see a place to enter in your email. Mm -hmm. And that will allow that to uh, be entered in and you will receive an email from Jeff every single week. Also, we talked about this last week and it is pretty important to us. Uh, If you guys like the work that Jeff and I are doing, obviously this is for free. You want to help us out. You can go onto your podcast app on iTunes and give us a, a rating and review. Mm-hmm. And we will be greatly appreciative of that, yep. right? Helps keep the lights on. Yeah. Actually, probably not because we don't make money from this. <laughs> we don't but, make money from the podcast, no, but, but it'll help other people find the podcast. Yes. And that's how iTunes works. So today we're going to be continuing our um, Super Investor Series. Mm-hmm. And the, it's actually one of the most listened to podcasts that we've done was mm-hmm. the one that we did on Warren Buffett. Okay. And today we're going to be talking about Joel Greenblatt. Mm-hmm. Would you consider him a super investor? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I would too. And for those who don't know, and I'm sure you do know because we've talked about him a lot, he is the author of Jeff and I's, uh, or my favorite book, You Can Mm -hmm. Be a Stock Market Genius. And I guess our investment strategy, part of that, the spinoff sort of stems around I guess his philosophy that he writes about in this book and yeah. you know things that he teaches. Um, but he's a Columbia Business School uh, professor where he teaches a special situations class. So spinoffs, uh, merger arbitrage, mm-hmm. probably all things uh, that he wrote about in the book. And he was a hedge fund manager mm-hmm. in his past life, yep. Gotham Funds. Yeah. And I think that's obviously what his sort of claim to fame is. He started Gotham Funds in 1985 and he ran it um, for outside investors for 10 years. Okay. I think the total lifespan of the fund was 20 years. All right. But he ran it for 10 years. And during that period, he achieved compound annual returns before fees, but after expenses of 50%. Mm-hmm. So he started with seven with seven million, uh, which was mostly raised through junk bond king Michael Milken. And then after five years, he returned half the capital. And then after 10 years, he returned, um, I think, more more okay. of the remaining capital and then kept and they um, closed it out yeah investors. he closed yeah. it and just managed his and his partners capital. yeah and the record the annual record there's in the book yep at the back of the book i think yep yep and he also has written two other books as well mm-hmm. um so he has you could be a stock market genius right uh, then the, that's my favorite yes that's our favorite right. the little book that beats the market which is fine yeah um <laughs> what, what's the other one um the big secret for the small investor okay did I, did I get that one right maybe which i think he says is yeah it is i'm looking at it right now the big secret for the small investor which he says is still a big secret because nobody bought the book <laughs> yeah um i've read all i've read all three books. and then yeah, yeah. and then he, the little book that still beats the market okay and today he runs also uh, a mutual fund, I think, where he employs the right. uh, you know the uh, the little book that beats the markets type right. of strategy. So high return on capital with high mm-hmm. earnings yield. You put them together, and you get you know potentially good longs, and then you could flip it on the other side and get good companies as short as well. Right. 
So, uh, so maybe we should go over each of the three kind of strategies because they're not just different books. They're actually different kinds of ideas that he talks about in each of them. Yeah, absolutely. Right. So you can be a stock market genius is um, special situations, right? So things like spinoffs, reorganizations, uh, mergers, um, uh, you know, leveraged um, recapitalizations, things like that. Uh, then, like you said, um, the little book that beats the market is um, a combination of high return on capital and low um, EV to EBIT multiple, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the last one is valuating the indexes. Uh, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Instead of price weighting them. Yeah. And what's interesting, why do you think he has, and he, I guess he sort of talked about it um, in the class notes that I've tweeted out before, the audited class notes, how they switch strategies because they would mm-hmm. wake up and their their net worth would change by like 2 to 3% per day because their okay. portfolio was structured like what, 5 to 6 securities, right? Yeah. Or 5 to 8. It was very, very concentrated. Yeah. And, and I think mm-hmm. he actually, in the book, he did a, um, a study or he referenced a study that showed um, if you own more than eight stocks or own more than 10 stocks, you actually, when it comes to business risk, are not any more diversified than if you own, you know, way right. less. So yeah. you are slightly more diversified. Um, but what it is that, um, so m- some incredible number, I don't know if it'll be half or something of the diversification that you can achieve um, in terms of just picking different stocks, so so not market risk, but business risk, you'll achieve that in like three stocks, right? And then to, if you think about it, to get the next 10% of diversification, if you imagine the possibility that you could be 100% diversified, right? Um, so like 100% diversified would be you own all, let's say in this case, you own all of the um, S&P 500 or something like that. Well, you get pretty close to that when you own, say, 20, right? And so uh, a lot of value investors even will say that it doesn't make sense to go beyond 30 or so stocks. And I think that's definitely true. Um, and yeah, he concentrates, he, they talk about, I think, six to eight or something like that is the mm-hmm. number that he gives in there. I don't know if his uh, fund was even more concentrated than that. It, sometimes it sounds like it might have been more concentrated than that, that or that they weren't evenly weighted. Mm-hmm. But when he talks about it for um, suggesting what you should do at home using the book, he mentions six to eight as being enough diversification. Mm-hmm. And I think that's probably right. Um, now, there are other kinds of diversification that you can get by owning different kinds of stocks and things like that. So, like, one of the ways he probably wasn't diversified is if he was doing spinoffs and recapitalizations and things like that, he was probably more exposed to credit um, risk, right? Because there wouldn't be very many um, stocks with good balance sheets in there. So that could have been a problem. But he was in a time where that wasn't a big issue those 10 years. Mm-hmm. But if it had been 2008, that might have been a big issue. Sure. Do you think a lot of, I guess, your performance could come, obviously, on, I guess, timing of when you started, yeah. when he started investing, stuff like yeah. that? I'm looking in his, those are... That's the perfect 10 years. Yeah, yeah, sure. Right. I mean, maybe you could have gone one more year or, or something like that, and it still would have been perfect. But um, from the middle of the 1980s to the middle of the 1990s is pretty perfect for stocks, yeah. I'm looking, and it says for those 20 years, $1,000 would now be $836,683. Okay. That's pretty crazy, yeah. isn't it? No, they're amazing returns, 50% annual returns. But um, like when Buffett had his partnership that he ran for, I guess, 13 years or something around that time, um, his returns uh, before um, his fees were about 30%. But you have to remember that the market's returns were in the single digits. So it was a harder time. So like Buffett's record is in a time that was more difficult, but Peter Lynch was in a time that was easier for his uh, decade or so, and Joel Greenblatt was in a time that was easier for his decade. Mm-hmm. I don't know how good the returns were over the full, the 20 years or so. Why do you think yeah. he switched gears with his strategy for you know, like managing outside capital? Well, one, I think it became more difficult to invest in these kinds of things. I don't think spinoffs will do as well now as they did then. Um, and 
maybe writing the book and stuff had some effect on that, but I don't know if, if that's really the reason. Um, and then I also think the issue of scaling up. I think some of the best returns that you get in these kinds of things are in smaller stuff. Yeah. Um, even when we talk about spinoffs and things with the manager accounts that we do and even in some of the case studies he gives, like he gives a case study that's Stratic. Um, that's a really small uh, stock when it was small from Briggs and Stratton. And that's a good example of the kind of thing. Do you remember the market cap of it? It might've been a hundred million. Yeah. Cause I'm looking when he finished or when he returned all outside capital, it says that he finished with more than 350 million in return all of the capital. Right. So that's not a huge number compared to some value investors. And and it's particularly not a huge number for someone who was getting those kinds of returns. You could have raised a lot more by that time. Uh And obviously Ben Graham, um, very severely limited how much capital he managed. What he would do basically is pay out the profits uh, as consistently as he could each year. He basically tried to keep the fund the same size as much as possible. And that allowed him to do some of these things that are um, really low risk, Right, so Ben Graham did things that were almost arbitrage type stuff that he was able to do, and it was possible um, and net nets and things like that with really small amounts of money. There are big spinoffs, but I think some of the good spinoffs, some things like that, are when you have a really big company spinning off something really small. I'm not sure that they're uh, when you break up a company in two that they are as attractive. Mm-hmm. Sure, yeah. and he was was he, and he was the one. It's kind of a unique story because obviously he he started Value Investors Club, right? right. Or he yeah. was a part of mm-hmm. the, the group or whatever that yeah. started Value Investors Club, and um, I, I think he's he's talked about it publicly before. The reason that they started it was because back in the day, before you know how the internet is now, mm-hmm. there was people that used to write about stocks on Yahoo Message Board. Right? Where, did you ever do that? Because I mean, you were no. sort of the first one. No. No. Yeah, and that's how we found Mike Burry. And mm-hmm. um, he said, "Well, wow! I guess there's another, or there's other smart people out there." And yeah. he uh, like reached out to him and seated him with capital. Mm-hmm. And you've obviously seen The Big Short, right? Yeah. Was he was Joel the one that was portrayed in that yeah. movie where he was like, "Give me my money back" yes, or whatever? He was, yeah, yeah. And he was like, "You're a stock picker. What are you? Mm-hmm. What are you doing with these? Yeah, CDSs and whatever." Yeah, I don't know how accurate the. Um yeah, but of course, it's probably glamorized, how much right? They dispute it and stuff. Yeah. I don't know, like, and you know, Bill Miller's in that one too, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. um, and I don't know if Joel Greenblatt and Bill Miller feel that they were accurately portrayed. I don't know. <laughs> he was, know he's like, get me my F and my or something like yeah, that. Probably, yeah. yeah, no, that's that's hilarious. Um, so then today, and I guess so, we could talk about the little book that beats the market. So you said okay. you think that he sort of switched gears to that, probably because just the strategy was pro- I mean he said that like I said before that their net worths used to like um, you know deviate between like being up and down like 3% to 5% yeah. one day with, now it's probably like more like 30 basis right. points right that might be the reason for it the other possible reason is if you're writing for people and he was already had written um, you can be a stronger genius you realize that sometimes the things you'd suggest to other people um, are different than what you might follow yourself and that's certainly true for me talking on this podcast and stuff um, I might be comfortable owning three stocks um, that I picked myself, but I'm not going to suggest that for other people. Um, for one thing, I'm comfortable not buying anything for a year or two or something for myself, and I think most people wouldn't just sit there and do nothing, right? So you say you, you sort of change the advice a little bit and suggest different things that you think are practical for people to carry out themselves. That's what happened with Ben Graham. He really wanted to focus on not getting the highest possible returns he could get, but coming up with systems that anyone could implement. And I think that's some of what you're seeing with um, the little book that beats the market. Because if you read, you can be a stock market genius. It's I'm not sure that's that easy to implement. I mean, we use it as a guide to what we do, but it doesn't really tell you what to do. 
it just tells you where you can sort of look at things and kind of gives you case studies that sort of show you the um, kind of thing you're looking for by example, but they don't have any sort of formula at all or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And it's not the sort of thing that an academic would, I mean, academics have studied spinoffs, but for the most part, this isn't even something that they would, that they would um, uh, look for the returns in and stuff because they'd say, okay, well, how exactly do you do this? Which ones do you pick that you don't invest in? Which do you pick that you do? Are we investing in all of them? And that's yeah. kind of what they've done. They've looked at like, okay, say you bought every spinoff. It's not really what the book says to do. Sure. Right. It's not what we do. I don't think it's what really anyone does. But that's the only thing that they would write a paper about. Yeah, sure. You know, so the little book that beats Mark is something that you can study and test and all that, and they back tested it, and you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say that although we love you can be a stock market genius, when the little book that beats market came out, everything it had a way bigger effect, uh, not just on value investors, but just generally in the internet and people's awareness of it, and the idea that it, I mean, it's a strategy that people know what it is. Yeah. It's like dogs of the Dow or something. You know, it's a, it has a name and people know what it is and. Uh, it gets talked about in a way that I think you can be a stock market genius, which is the better book doesn't get talked about. Do you think it's because it's pretty simple and he has the website up and I think yeah. his instructions are literally go pick like 30 stocks per year or whatever it is. Yeah. Yes. And there is a back test. Yeah. And I think the combination of here's a strategy and it worked in the past uh, is what gets people excited. It's pretty interesting too, that he's talked about if you actually go through and kind of cherry pick the ideas that mm-hmm. it doesn't actually add or, det- or it doesn't add to like the performance and whatnot. Yeah, uh, it's interesting. I, I think that's maybe true. I, I don't know that I, I'm not a big fan of the little book that beats the market in terms of a strategy, the magic formula. I, I don't like it as a strategy. Um, uh, because basically what it is doing is it's saying, uh, taking the Warren Buffett approach, but saying, but you can't actually tell what has a moat and what doesn't. So buy them all. Basically buy a basket of them. So it's like invest in the kind of stuff Warren Buffett does, but don't have his approach of trying to f- figure out which things are durable and which aren't. Um, and I, he's probably right in that like cherry picking them doesn't um, get you better returns. That's possible. But I think you could cherry pick them to reduce risk. Do you think it's a good place for people to start to look for ideas, almost use as a screener? I don't really like it as a screener. I've looked at it many, many times as a yeah. screener, and I don't just generally don't like it um, for a few reasons. One, people tend to run the screen that has the biggest stocks, which I think are the worst Sure, yeah. uh, to do that way. This is the same thing as the net nets. People always talk about the biggest net nets, and the biggest net nets are always, or not always, but usually the worst net nets. Sure. The best net nets are usually the small ones. But what gets written up and what I see, I, you never read magazine articles and things about little net nets. You read them about the few times that you have really big net nets. But then that means that someone's going to write about like Circuit City or something. You know what I mean? It's going to be something that is really hated. The magic formula works that same way where there's some of the most controversial sorts of things. Um, that tends to be what's on. They're sort of busted growth stocks is what shows up on that list usually. Um, not exclusively, but yeah, I would say so. Mm-hmm. They're, they're more contrarian type things. What, what was in the book? Because I didn't read The Big Secret for the Small Investor. Do you remember what, what was in that book? I don't remember except just what I said about valuating instead of, yeah. Um, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, and and I know I, I've said it. Have you and have you read those class notes that I've tweeted out before? Yeah. yeah and I yeah. think that's a great source for um, people to learn from. Yeah, that's from. terrific. Absolutely. Yeah. I wonder what, if how much of his current class is a lot like, because those notes are from like the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. And no, I wonder. But those are great notes, yeah. And, and Value Investors Club the same way where it's sort of you can see what write-ups are good and what ones aren't. And actually I think he used an example of a... Um, in the notes right about a write up from value investors club yeah mm-hmm. yeah so i think they're excellent from like how to appraise something 
and a lot of the um so, so a lot of the yeah the, it, those are great to look at that because it really is looking at a company and coming up with a valuation for it mm-hmm, sure yeah. do you use value investors club uh when we talk about a stock or something i look to see if it's talked about there yeah i can't say that i've ever got an idea from value investors club I think it's good to what I use it for is if we start looking at a new company mm-hmm. just to kind of go get like some background on it, see what people have said about it in the past, yeah. you know, cause that could obviously be, um, you know, pretty beneficial. Yeah. There's a variety of people on value investors club. I'd say a lot of them are, um, well, they tend to be professionals and a lot of them are more short term oriented with a catalyst kind of thing. Um, they're much more focused on what the, how quickly an idea will, um, be successful or not mm-hmm. and there's a surprising amount of people writing about short things and they're often um, they're not that great they i mean the write-ups might be wonderful but i mean the performance is poor yeah yeah sure so no, that's pretty interesting what's funny is he discovered benjamin graham i think when he was in college he's talked about mm-hmm. um how he had to do some sort of like academic paper or something okay. along those lines and he came across benjamin graham to you do you think he's more of like a warren buffett or more like a, a graham maybe back in the day he was he sort of shipped gears a little bit because if you look mm-hmm. at a lot of um like a lot of and you know you could be a stock market genius it's not right. like all those companies were like not leveraged businesses and had clean balance sheets and were companies that Warren Buffett would, you know, like to buy. Right. Although Buffett wasn't necessarily the same kind of investor when he was running the partnership. Sure. It's true. And some of these things, if you read the case studies and stuff were incredibly cheap. So it is true that he bought into situations that used a lot of leverage and stuff, but he was, these, the, you can be a stock market genius talks about things that are really value type investing things. Um, when we're looking at spinoffs today, that's much less true. There are things that are spinning off, from companies that are pretty expensive and pretty successful. You see it much more often now where they're not really troubled, cheap sort of companies spinning things off that are really cheap. Um, so I, I think that probably, though, he did... Uh, I've heard him talk a little bit about these things, but I would say that he may have learned while he was running the fund that some uh, businesses that were really good businesses maybe worked out longer you know, than he would have expected, um, that they... The idea kept um, doing well. Uh, he talks a little bit. I don't. Does he talk about Moody's in there? Um, so Moody's was this. He talks about Moody's, I think, in the class notes. Class notes, okay, yeah. Because yeah, I was wondering. That I tweet out. It's yeah. my pinned tweet if anyone wants to check that out. Okay. At, at Focused Compound. At Focused Compound. Um, yeah, so because Moody's, he would have been investing in something that Buffett was also investing in. Buffett bought Moody's on the spinoff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sure. Uh, so, Moody's was spun off from Dun & Bradstreet, I think. Got it. I'm looking at. Um, he's a great author too, by the way. Like he's pretty funny. Yeah. In his in his writings, it's like very he's good. very witty, very very funny, very entertaining. So I guess what I liked about his because the book goes over. Uh, you could be a stock market genius. Goes mm-hmm. over spinoffs, mergers, bankruptcies, restructurings, yeah. right offering, rights offerings, risk arbitrage, merger securities, and recapitalization. Yeah, and if I remember right, the risk arbitrage one isn't even a profitable story. It's a, it's yeah, a story yeah. about how yeah. he, what everything that went wrong. That's the sinkhole story, I think. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. And so at the, how he concludes every uh, chapter is he gives a little of a quick summary. So I'm going to okay. read off what his what he says about spinoffs. Maybe All you right. could you know add some commentary on what you think. Number one, spinoffs in general beat the market. Obviously, uh, yes. we tend historically to, they have certainly. Yeah, we mm-hmm. we tend to, and I actually I would caution total spinoffs of u.s stocks yes i read a lot on other blogs about these partial spinoffs of sort of things in yeah. europe and stuff and they could be doing that for very different reasons so u.s companies spinning off completely spinning off something yeah they outperform uh-huh and he also references a penn state study that showed that they outperform by like 10 percent per outperf- year or something they, yeah, like that i think that's definitely 
declined. But over that was time, yeah, though. that was in like yeah. you know that was a while ago. But Monish Pabrai, he also did one recently mm-hmm. where and he ran a study and they still outperformed, but it wasn't as good as it was when he ran or when the Penn State study was right. referenced. But yeah. I mean, I don't know that I've seen like any academic studies of any metrics that outperform by ten percent a year, right? Even when we talk about things like some of the things that perform best are like. Uh, um, right, uh, sm- a small, uh, like, micro-cap value or something, right? Well, that doesn't outperform the market by 10% a year. Yeah. Right? Sure. Yeah. Alrighty, next one. Picking your spots within the spinoff universe can result in even better results than the average spinoff. I, I guess it's true. So, I mean, do you just, yeah, I mean, that, that, that makes sense, right? Um, yeah, I mean, I like spinoffs that are um, good businesses. Yes. Right, so that's the thing that we focus on more. Um, and I have bought into some spinoffs. The so. way that we sort of look at it, I would say, is it's really just, and I, I sort of wrote about this in the last letter, is just mm-hmm. fishing where the fish are, right, in the right yeah. pond. It's just a pond that historically has done very well, and if yeah. you could sort of cherry pick the great businesses from there, we think obviously you can do okay. Yeah, one thing I should point out is I've probably bought the remaining company more often than I've bought the spinoff company. Really? Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, I believe BWX Technologies was the remaining company of Babcock and Wilcox, even though the name Babcock and Wilcox went with the uh, other one. Because in in his examples, he kind of always buys usually the spinoffs, right? They get he does. They're yeah. the ones that are left for dead. They get. But but think about NACO, for instance. Yeah, the NACO was the remaining part of the company, but the spinoff when it spun off, certainly even just by market cap, but definitely by enterprise value, was valued much higher than the remaining part of the company. So they spun off something that ended up being worth by the market's deci- um, uh, how the market estimated its value on day one uh, more than 50% of their company, mm-hmm. right? Sure. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Alrighty. Certain characteristics point to an exceptional spinoff opportunity. Okay. And then he lists some. Institutions don't want the spinoff right. and not because of the investment merits. Okay. So what does he mean by that? Uh, things like it will no longer be in an index. Yep. Uh, so you get some index like it's selling. too small. Yeah. Right, so if the company was a billion dollars and now it's a small part of that, not even just institutions, but also individual investors as well. Right, if you think about right. like for example, um, KLXI, right, which mm-hmm. we've publicly talked about, yeah. Boeing is purchasing them, and they had to spin off. Right. They just did spin off KLXE. Yeah, so you, if you think about people that own this aerospace business and now they own this little right. energy services EMP uh, business, right, right. Um, that could create some sort of selling right. pressure. Right, and the spinoff is a probably, I would say, about 15% of the total value, mm-hmm. right? And then these were people who wanted an aerospace business, and they're getting cash. So they're forcibly being cashed out of 85% of their position. Are they going to hold on to the other 15%? We'll see. It's just spun off, but sure. it'll take a little time. But I think that's a good example yeah. to sort of demonstrate We it. also talked about Hamilton Beach Brands, um, which ha- they spun off. Um, another way that th- this can happen is they chose to spin off both A and B shares to you regardless of whether you owned A or B. And that was confusing to some people and some people didn't want the B shares. Mm-hmm. So, Do you think, and from your history, do you think spinoffs that where you have two completely different businesses in different industries, do you think that's where there's potentially the most opportunity? Yeah. Yeah. I would and I think spinoffs that. where the spinoff is um, where the, so I think spinoffs where the, um, there's a size difference between the companies. Uh, are also a big part of it. So not something, I don't think seeing a $6 billion company spin off into two $3 billion companies is going to do that much for you. Sure. But seeing a billion dollar company spin off uh, something that's a hundred million might. Yeah. Next one. Insiders want the spin off. 
Yes, obviously. And KLXE is a good example of that. Uh, they chose not to take any. First of all, they if you read the background to the deal, they basically um, decided not to do a deal where they sold themselves entirely to Boeing because Boeing was willing to do that, um, and chose to instead have the spinoff happen. So that was their. Uh, they felt they weren't getting good enough price, and then they chose not to take salaries, and instead take a percentage of the company. So mm-hmm. they get paid with the percentage of the company over like three years. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so their incentives obviously are on the same side as shareholders. Yeah, exactly. Okay, a previously hidden investment opportunity is uncovered by the spinoff transaction. An example: a cheap stock, a great business, a yeah. leveraged risk reward. Yeah, that's situation. definitely true. That's the biggest part of it. Yeah, is that last one that you said? Because like BWX Technologies is a great example. It was um, Babcock and Wilcox was three uh, pieces to the business. It had one money losing uh, part of the business. It had one highly cyclical part of the business, and then it had a very profitable and incredibly non-cyclical business. And that's the one the market valued almost three times as much once the other parts were taken out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Alrighty. Next one. You can locate and analyze spinoff prospects by reading the business press and following up with the SEC filings. Yes, it's Obviously easier it's now. It's yeah. much easier now. Than when when he, he wrote about it, he just yeah. said, um, you know, check the Wall Street Journal pretty yeah, much. And yeah, and read Edgar. Yeah. Nowadays, I mean, there's good blogs about it. We've talked about Clark Street Value. Yep. We Clark blog about a lot of ideas. Yeah. Um, I think Zen Investing, I think that's one I also came across. Okay. Or Spinoff Monitor, Spinoff Review. Yeah. Those are I mean, all really good sources. If you just sources. follow at Focus Compound, you will see spinoffs mentioned. Yeah. You'll see, you'll retweet something that is a spinoff, whatever, even if there's not analysis of it. And Focus Compounding, the site, has write-ups of... Oh, most all the interesting spinoffs I feel like are being written up there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You'll like this one because what you said, paying attention to parents can pay off handsomely. Yes, I agree with that. I agree with that. And here's another reason why. Because when there's a spinoff, so what's happening with a spinoff is it's telling you a few things about the company that are really interesting. One of the most interesting things is it's telling you that they care about shareholder value because they're breaking up the company and they, the managers who are staying with the parent, are going to have a, a smaller fiefdom now, right? So it's going to be, they're not going to be as high up in the rankings of whatever, you know, um, uh, size of their business they are. They're, they're, it's going to be somewhat harder usually to justify being paid as much or more because that's often done by size of the company. And when they compare them to peers and things like that, they'll be in a different peer group. Um, and so they're doing it to probably for some sort of recognition by the market, right? Mm-hmm. And that's true whether you're the parent or the spinoff. The difference is the spinoff when a company spins something off, it usually means, with some exceptions, but it usually means they tr- would have liked to have sold it, but they didn't get the bids that they wanted and stuff. So maybe it's a bad time for the company like KLXE. They felt it was a bad time for the industry, oil services, and they didn't get a, a bid that they thought represented the uh, value of the yeah, company. And if, right? if you read the background of, of the transaction, they yeah. actually say that, yeah. Yeah, so basically they'll just wait till a better part of the cycle to sell the company if they do sell it i don't mm-hmm. know that one's actually different because the deal has different irs treatment so that one could be sold quickly usually we should say a spinoff in the u.s a spinoff is not i would say there's like zero chance of it being sold within two years or so about that and maybe longer because uh it could uh, trigger um tax consequences so occasionally there are spinoffs that are taxable spinoffs and then that's not the situation mm-hmm. and that's one of them Got it. Next one. There's two left. Partial spinoffs and rights offerings create unique investment opportunities. Uh, That might be true. Rights offerings are definitely treated very strangely by investors. Um, So that's definitely a possibility for a serious mispricing. However, rights offerings do often happen with companies that are in serious distress. Do you want to explain? Because Greenberg Partners, they had a rights offering with Dan Lopes. They did. Yeah. 
David so, Arnold. So. Yeah. So a rights offering is when they give. Um, uh, so a rights offering is when uh, existing shareholders are offered the chance to um, get additional shares in the company. But basically, if everyone subscribes to it, if all the existing shareholders decide to um, exercise their rights, they'll all just end up putting money into the company and end up with the same proportional interest. But some people will not exercise the right, and that means that your interest can increase. So if you're a 10% shareholder and most other people don't exercise their rights, you'll go up above 10%. If you choose not to exercise your rights and some other people do, then your interest is going to drop below 10%. Mm-hmm. But the reason why a company would do it is because they want capital and they they need cash and they, for some reason, aren't borrowing it. So when I mentioned Babcock and Wilcox, the part that um, uh, that was not successful uh, in that spinoff, the coal part of it, uh, got into a very distressed situation and eventually did a rights offering. And um, that's a reason to do it. The rights offering in that case was because they needed capital. And probably there were some things also about like control of the company and, and things like that where they wanted to be careful about that. So those two factors of who owned how much of the company mm-hmm. and that you need capital are the two things that usually happen in rights offering. So I would say that usually they're um, weaker balance sheets and you should really pay attention to rights offering. That's probably something about the situation means they can't raise debt. Yeah. Got it. And then the last one, which I guess this kind of shows his his uh, entertaining self when you're reading it, he says, oh, yes, keep an eye on the insiders. And he puts in parentheses, did I already mention that? Yeah, he's big on looking at the insiders. Yeah. And as we mentioned with KLXE, um, they chose to forego um, salary in, in exchange for a um, meaningful percentage of the company. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, do you, what, what are your opinion? What's your opinion on leaps? And he talks about that in the book. I like leaps. Have you uh, ever used leaps to purchase a stock? Or to, I guess, play a stock or invest in a stock? I suggested Leap. So here we go. We did uh, podcasts on GameStop and Intercom, right? Yeah. Yeah. So the author of those who we had on. That uh, love for Schled. Okay. Uh, I suggested to him, after he wrote those up, I said, I, I think you should do an article about those stocks with Leaps. Because me personally, if I was looking at either of those stocks, I would not buy the stock. I would buy Leaps. So we should talk about why that is. And I think he uses the example with Wells Fargo, right? Back in the early 1990s. So. Is that the one he yeah. gives? Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, which I also think that Bruce Berkowitz bought the same thing or, or uh, bought the stock, I should say. I think he got the idea from Berkowitz to buy Wells Fargo. But so it was an uh, excellent bank that was in trouble because California real estate was in trouble. So the downside risk is big. There's some meaningful chance that it could go to zero, I guess. And yet, if it doesn't, the company's wonderful and so it'll compound at a great rate. That's when you want to use leaps, right? When you think there's a really big upside, but there's some downside you can't get rid of. And that's the risk. The other way of doing that is like we've talked about, I think on this podcast, but if not, we are now, uh, Hostess Brands. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Hostess Brands is warrants. I don't know how, like warrants is a are an excellent thing. They're rare in the modern stock market. But um, warrants are uh, like stock options, but basically they're things that, uh, the company will get cash for if they're exercised. And so they're usually created as part of some sort of transaction, in that case, like a leverage buyout type deal, right? So um, warrants work the same way as leaps, though. They're basically a way of buying a long-term option on the stock. And the advantage of it is you don't tie up capital, so you get big leverage on it, and um, that's appealing to some people. But what I'm thinking is that the appealing part is that you can um, – get a lot of upside without taking a big downside risk. 
So what you can do is if, say, you would normally buy a 20% position in your portfolio, with leaps or something, you could buy a 5% position, depending on the price of the leaps versus the price of the stock. And you might get the same sort of upside you would get by just buying the stock outright. And yet your downside is now only 5% of your portfolio, not 20%. Right? Mm -hmm. Now, you could buy the same size position. And then what you're doing is you're just leveraging your portfolio up incredibly because leaps are options and uh, warrants are options that create incredible amount of leverage. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, But they're long-term, which is the huge difference between them and options. So in the case of GameStop and Intercom, for anyone listening, uh, if you want to look at those things, uh, I would actually suggest looking at the leaps, and they have leaps for those two stocks. Mm-hmm. So you can go um, and check out the options. I think um, leaps expire in January of each year, right? I think so. Yeah. Okay. So you would look and then you would see, um, so they could be up to two years, mm-hmm. I think, right? And then depending on the time of the year, they could be anywhere from two years to like a, a year. Interesting. And I guess we should have probably talked about in the beginning, he is 60 years old. Is that correct? <laughs> we were kind of laughing about this beforehand because I Jeff was looking over my notes that I had for Joel and yeah. and um, I had in here that he's sixty years old and he's right. like oh is that how old he really is and I was like I don't know I got him off of, I got it off of Wikipedia yeah and I said did you check the citation from Wikipedia where Wikipedia yeah. is citing as their source yeah so that I, I go to Wikipedia and I look at references and the number three Gannon Jeff Valley Investing Encyclopedia Joel Greenblatt December twenty eighth two thousand five so maybe you shouldn't always trust Wikipedia yeah in this case if you're trusting Wikipedia you're trusting what I thought his age was in 2005. Because what, you you said you estimated it or whatever? Yeah, I read a couple articles and I estimated based on some sort of facts. I sort of triangulated things to figure out what his age was. So I could be wrong, but Wikipedia thinks I'm right. That's so funny. You've been (laughs) on the internet forever, 2005. I love it. So do you have any final thoughts on Joel? Or, um, you know, for me, I think he's just a great... I mean, because there's a lot of information out there, his performance has been so great. And mm-hmm. he's, because there's a lot of people that have good performance, not as right. good as his, but they don't really, I guess you could say, like, uncover what they did during sure. that time. And I yeah. think that's what's always attracted me to his, um, you know, learning the way he thinks about things. And on YouTube, there's videos that he's had recorded of his actual class, which is mm-hmm. a ton of fun. If you're investing junkie, to go and, and watch. And of course, like I've talked about, his audited class notes, um, you know, so he's put a lot, he's given back a lot to the value investing community right and i think the people that you can look for who had great performance um or great risk adjusted performance at least and um talked about it extensively are ben graham warren buffett peter lynch and joel greenblatt those are the ones that really stand out that if you want to learn from people who really um did for 10 years or more have an excellent record it's those people Mm because they really uh put down so much detail about what they did there's lots of other people with great records but there's much less information from them about why they did what they did Mm -hmm. you know um i think maybe we should talk a little bit about why uh you can be a stock market genius is our favorite book and why we uh, apply those techniques in the managed accounts because i mean when we did a presentation on it we talked specifically about his book and his ideas in what our ideas were for the managed accounts because the managed accounts do not just invest generally in everything Right, they're only looked. There, it's overlooked stocks. That's yeah. the idea, mm-hmm. and part of that. And so it's you know part I think ben people Graham, would, you could say, and part Joel Greenblatt. I think people would fire us if we bought Apple or you know Wells Fargo or <laughs> okay. all those other stocks. Yeah, yeah. But so, uh, what is it about his approach that made it that that's the kind of thing that we want to focus on? Well, for me. I guess, A, when I read this book a long time ago, it Mm -hmm. was sort of one of those first books that I was like, wow, this is finally, like he's sort of adding context to this whole value investing thing, right? When you would read a lot of other people's, um, you know, books written on on stuff, this book and Robert Hagstrom's Warren Buffett Way was kind of the only book that actually like talked about 
I guess, applying real multiples to mm-hmm. businesses and like transactions and stuff like that. So it sort of added context to this value investing theory that I had mm-hmm. when I read it a long time ago. But again, I think what has always been so attractive to me is, especially if you're dealing with smaller sums of capital, mm-hmm. it's a great strategy to employ. It's a pond, like I said, that historically has done pretty well. Mm-hmm. Right. And if you can sort of take this, um, you know, this, this stock pack picking sense mm-hmm. and, and go and fish in that pond, I think it, it, I always thought it was a pretty good pond to fish in. Okay. So, where are the downsides to this approach? Downsides are there's not a limited idea, so I guess you could say, right? right? Mm-hmm. Especially with spinoffs. Um, well, you're owning a small number of stocks. Sure. Right? Yeah. It's more concentrated. Yeah. For sure. Because there's just more, not going to be enough situations happening at any one time. More volatile. Right. For sure. Yeah. And then you also have, um, that these are not stocks everyone's talking about. Yeah. So you have to just kind of, if you really focus on this the way that he did with the fund, um, you're buying things and caring about things a great deal that most people aren't even really looking at. That yeah, hard, sure. Right? So there's some special situations investors you can find. We talked about a Clark Street Value blog is really a special situations one. And there are others like that. You can find special situations investors who that's all they talk about. But outside of that group, even with other value investors, they're going to want to talk about what Warren Buffett owns. They're going to yeah, want to talk sure. about the latest uh, cyclical things that are, yeah. yeah, they could be talking about all those things. And this is, instead, you're talking about um, things like, uh, well, let's give some live examples, right, that this still happens. Okay, so we talked about KLXE. Yep. That's happened, I think, uh, as we're recording this, that happened yesterday, mm-hmm. that it spun off. Okay, there's, um, let's see, there's... Uh, Service Master is breaking up. Yep. Right. So Service Master is going to split off into one business will basically be Terminex mm-hmm. and one base business will basically be um, American Home Shield. Yep. Yeah. The home warranty business. Yeah. Home warranty business. So that's a pest control business and a home warranty business. And that's happening now. Um, let's see. Oh, there's also Honeywell is having two different spinoffs that are yeah. happening. So it's going to spin off um, Honeywell uh, Residia, which is Honeywell Home and um, a distribution business. But basically, that's the original Honeywell. Essentially, they're spinning off their very first business right from the 1800s. And um, so that's like thermostats and things like that. And then you have uh, Garrett Motion. They're spinning off too which is turbochargers for um, especially for like diesel things in Europe and stuff is their biggest market, I think. But that stuff's happening right now. Right. So, and we had spinoffs in the past. We talked about Hamilton beach brands, right? We talked about NACO cause that was a spinoff from Hamilton and uh, Hamilton beach brands was a spinoff from NACO. So these are the sorts of things that are happening um, even right now. And then there's the question of like, um, are those cheap? The things I just mentioned, Honeywell's not really a cheap stock, right? Mm-hmm, sure. Um, uh, Service Master, what's the EBITDA, EBITDA multiple on that? It's not real low, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, you have these things where it's a question of are they as attractive as they were when he was looking at them mm-hmm. in those case studies? Sure. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, we we think so, obviously, because we, we mm-hmm. manage it, yeah. And it's interesting because he, he also wrote about in the book, too, how most spinoffs don't tend to outperform to the first year. Do you right. recall him saying that? So, yeah, and this is interesting. So you could look at all of last year's mm-hmm. ideas and kind of sift through them as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You can look at things that have been around for a, a little while. Some go off right away and, and don't uh, uh, come back down after that. Uh, like I mentioned a couple times, BWX Technologies, that one was almost like the – but I thought you had to buy it before the spinoff because people would ha- uh, buy, bid it up in anticipation. That did not happen at all. But then um, when the spinoff happened, it really went up. Uh, a different case is NACO when it was the combined company 
within a year when it had announced that it was going to do this and, and the spinoff was planned, the stock went up a lot. Mm-hmm. Then when the spinoff happened, the stock did is basically at the same price today, I think, uh, about the same price today as where it spun off, almost exactly the same price you could get an echo at today. Mm-hmm. Um, so that one you would have made the most money if you bought it ahead of the spinoff and sold it you know, within a month or so after the spinoff, something like that, a couple months at most. Mm-hmm. Um, so the timing is always very different. Um, I think it, Do you think that comes from just the fact that more people know about spinoffs now? Yeah, I think some people want to buy every spinoff. Their inclination is, I should buy this spinoff, um, even without knowing a lot about the business or something, and especially in the, for a quick buck. Uh, so many people do, basically, where they just look at where the peers are, which is sort of what he suggests, and then if it's cheaper than the peers, you buy it, Yeah. right? And they just want to buy every spinoff and see what happens. And, you know, as an index or something, that wouldn't be bad, I don't think. Uh, you could do a lot worse than having an, uh, a basket of all spinoffs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but yeah, there is a timing thing. It's a question like um, we were talking about KLXE and what will happen with that. Um, you know, the spinoff just happened, so maybe it'll trade down for a week or a month or something. I don't know. You know, people have, have to get their shares and sell them if there's going to be selling pressure on it. Um, so, you know, it, it depends on the situation. I, you attract different kinds of stockholders, right? So I think that th- this attracts people when there is – activity like this like there was with NACO it attracts people who are more value investors who are more short-term oriented um, and are in it more for the catalyst because people who the same thing with the Boeing thing once it was announced that Boeing was buying KLXI the people who are in it because they like the stock all those you know long-term shareholders and people are in it for the quality they get out and it you know there are basically people doing arbitrage there ends up being the stockholder base so it turns over completely Mm mm-hmm I think you see that all the time with these sorts of things. Great. Interesting. And uh, that's, I think that's a pretty good place to stop. Do you think, uh, if you think anyone could take stuff away from Joel Greenblatt to add to their own investor toolkit, what, what would you say it would be? Um, I would say read the book. You can be a stock market genius. Be just because in terms of what the research they talks about of the process mm-hmm. of what you do, how you find an idea. I think that's one of the best parts. There are other books that are as practical in terms of the actual stock ideas. But this is really the most practical book that I know of in terms of saying, okay, um, you read something that might be interesting. How do you follow up with it? What do you look into? And he describes sort of in the case studies almost what would have attracted your attention originally into it and things like that, which is often not what they do in other books. It's like, I bought this, but how did you know? How did you get attracted to it in the first place? Why were you interested in it? How did you follow up and learn these other facts and things like that? And he really goes into that, which is such an important part of investing. Um, and the other possibilities you can look at, um, the little book that beats the market. A lot of people like it. I'm, I'm not the biggest fan of that approach. It's a pretty simple book to read. It's a very simple book to read. And there's tons of screens and communities that talk about it and blogs devoted to it and all that. Do you know how the performance is done? Like in real, real terms? I, I know that, that I guess like it was real ri- life. Yeah. I know that for a while it was originally poor after that. I don't know if yeah. that's continued, huh. but it's not in that many different market environments. I think that sure. that's basically testing a market, you know, with the fang type stocks and things like that. Yeah, yeah sure. No, that's great. Well, we want to thank everybody for tuning in with us here today. If you do want to support Mr. Jeff and myself, obviously, uh, this is a free podcast. You can do that by going to give us a rating and a review yes. <laughs> on iTunes. Mm-hmm. And that will make... Or Apple Podcasts, whatever it's called. Yeah, they'll make, yeah. Yeah, podcasts. Podcast. They'll make Jeff and I very happy. Other than that, we hope everybody has a great Wednesday. We will see you in the next podcast. We have a lot of people lined up to come on the show uh, that we're very excited about. We're excited to uh, bring them on. And a lot of people are really going to enjoy the conversations we are going to have. So we will see you in the next podcast. Everyone have a great week. Take care.
Hey, this is Jeff Gannon, and that was the Focus Compounding Podcast, the podcast where Andrew and I talk general investing concepts. If you want to know more about specific stocks I like, go to focuscompounding.com, where you can read stock ideas written up by me and other members. Membership costs $60 a month, but if you use the promo code podcast, it'll be $50 a month for you. Andrew and I also manage accounts for investors. To learn more about our managed accounts, email Andrew at info at focuscompounding.com or text or call Andrew at 469-207-5844. That's 469-207-5844. Thanks for listening.